Well, I'd also like to welcome you to Lakeside this morning. We're glad that you're here with us. Um, We are in a series together as a church family through the life of King David uh, in the Old Testament. And one of the great things about going through David's life is that we have a lot by way of stories that happened through First and Second Samuel of the events of his life. But through the Psalms, we also get access into a bit of his own mind and heart and how he processed even some of those events. Because um, there are certain Psalms that specifically mark the time in David's life when uh, basically those verses would have come out of. And today's exactly an example of that, as we'll be in Second Samuel chapter 12 and then Psalm 51, and you guys will, will see that together. But last week we left, um, the story ended with uh, David making about as big of a mess of things as he could have, and abusing his power as king, taking advantage um, of, of one of his faithful soldiers, and knowing that he would be faithful, and sending him off into battle, intentionally leaving him to die so that he could have his wife. And we saw at the end that the thing that David had done had displeased the Lord. And it just, it's been the, the reality of David's story all along that he, there's so many great things about him and there are so many um, just realities of brokenness in his life and we don't know what to do. The, the bad parts are really bad and the good parts are really good. And, and the one doesn't outweigh the other. They're just both there and the Bible faithfully records them for us to see and to be reminded that, that that's true of each and every one of us. Um, all the bad parts in David's life don't happen in the beginning and then he gets progressively wiser and smarter and it all ends well. Um, It's kind of interspersed all throughout his life where there's amazing moments of courage and faithfulness and then there are times of just what, what, hard to describe apart from just ignorance and rebellion uh, against God and his word. And uh, in today's, as we go to 2 Samuel chapter 12, we'll see how God brings someone into his life to give David what he needs but doesn't want which is true for all of us. <laughs> uh, what we need most, we, we rarely want. And if you see the quote on the back of your handout, it, it's appropriate for the overall message today. It's from C.S. Lewis. He says, if you look for truth, you may find comfort in the end. If you look for comfort, you'll neither get comfort or truth. And that's a reality in David's life. And so if you haven't already, I invite you to take a Bible and to open it to 2 Samuel chapter 12. in the Old Testament. You'll find it on page 263. If you're using one of the Bibles, it's provided for you there in the pew. We've borrowed a phrase from the New Testament for today's message, speaking the truth in love. This is what happens um, in 2 Samuel chapter 12. Uh, We're going to read verses 1 through 15 and, and not go beyond that because Uh, It it just hits a little bit too close to home for me uh, to go beyond that for your sake. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 12. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. And now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. 
But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, Because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. And that's where we'll conclude for now. When we go to Psalm 51, we'll see a bit how David reacts in full to the news that Nathan has brought to him. We've titled this message, Speaking the Truth in Love. It says, the Lord, in verse 1, sent Nathan to David. We wonder if the Lord also gave him the story to tell David, because as Nathan comes to him, he, what he does is he actually um, tells David a fictional story in order to try to get David to see, and if you will, discover for himself part of the truth of his own actions. And so rather than coming in directly, to borrow a phrase from Emily Dickinson, he tells it slant. Uh, He tells the truth, but he tells it slant. He tells a story in order for David to come to the conclusion himself that he, uh, of just the, the horrible nature of everything he had done in the previous chapter. And one of the goals when we're speaking the truth in love, which means there's someone who we love and we're trying to reach out to them, but we want to speak the truth to them, is we have to ask ourselves, are we speaking this truth to try to affect change in the person we're speaking to. Nathan is trying to do that. He is speaking the truth to affect change. He is desiring that at the end of his time with David, David would do differently and be differently than when he first enters the conversation. If we go into a conversation and our only goal is to speak the truth, And we just want to get something off our chest. We just want to tell someone they're wrong. We just want to tell someone how mad we are at them. Well, then we can just say it any which way, and we can come up with a whole number of words that would be appropriate to do so. And we can vent our anger. And then usually that would be the end of your communication with that person, and there's not an ongoing relationship. But when you go into a situation, and part of your anger is because you really love this person, 
and you desire that this person would see the ugliness of their sin and that they would change, that they would desire to repent from their own sin, then we have to come at that conversation in such a way that we're not primarily speaking the truth and telling them what they need to know as much as helping them discover the truth for themselves. That inside their own hearts they would say, you know what I did was really wrong. What I did was, I know I knew what I was doing. And, and, and throughout the course of David's life, we know that. He didn't fall into sin in the last chapter because he was ignorant. He didn't really know that murder was wrong. And he didn't really know that breaking promises was wrong. And so knowledge is not usually the issue. But oftentimes when we get into sin, we have to find a way to sleep at night. And so we justify the sin in our own mind. And so we need people who come alongside of us and help us see it for all of its ugliness. And Nathan just does something brilliant. He taps into the very same uh, picture and scene that David had used so effectively to actually give us a way of understanding God in ways we'd never understood him before. If you remember the very beginning of this series when we went through Psalm 23, there's David, this person who went from being uh, the youngest of all of his siblings and a shepherd uh, out in the wilderness and that God would bring him into this leadership role in his kingdom, and then David would basically take that, everything he knew about shepherding, and he would describe God as our shepherd, as the one who would provide for all of our needs, and and just took the picture of that reality of being a shepherd out in the wilderness with sheep, and he would describe God in such a way that for thousands of years now, we use that psalm, we read that psalm at funerals, and and it's one of the most well-known parts of all of the Bible. And what Nathan does is takes him back basically to the same scene and says, I want you to picture someone out in in the field. And I want you to picture someone who only has one. He's poor, but he, he, he makes his own investment of money. He buys it. He cares for it. Cares for it so much that it's basically like one of the family. I mean, this is the family pet um, that everyone loves and everyone knows. And the kids help working with this Pet. And so he tells this story and he gets David's mind and imagination right back into, if you will, the innocence of those moments of his childhood. And he says, now I want you to picture that somebody comes alongside of that. And though he has tons of sheep to spare, when a guest comes, he says, well, I, I, I don't, don't want to use one of my many sheep. I'm going to go and I'm going to take the only sheep that this guy has, the only lamb that this guy has. And David can just see the ugliness. He's like, and in his own voice, he says, surely this man deserves to die. What David does not know is that he is pronouncing a judgment on his own behavior. So he's, he's just listening to this story, picturing this scene. His imagination is engaged and he can see the ugliness in the story that he couldn't quite see in his own life and in his own behavior just in the months prior in all that happened in chapter 12. And so Nathan comes in and we're left to wonder, I mean, was he just praying before (laughs) this discussion and saying, God, how do I do this? And this is what came to him or what? We know the Lord sent him, but he, he employs just this incredibly creative way of telling it slant and trying to get David to discover for himself the nature of his sin, because what he desires is not just to speak his mind and walk away, 
but to speak truth into David's life that will hopefully affect change in David's life, that his behavior will be different as a result of this. And so it should be no surprise to us that when the son of David, Jesus, comes in the New Testament, he often does this as well, to try to get people to see past their blind spots. He told several stories in such a way that people could see the characters in the story, see their behavior, and then hopefully by the end of it, identify the truth of themselves in it. And so it was Jesus who told the story of a man who'd been beaten and left on the side of a road, and then a priest came by and a Levite came by, and he tells the story of the Good Samaritan. And there's just something about the way that story is told, that it sticks in our minds and in our hearts. It was Jesus who said, imagine a father with two sons, and then one of the sons says, you know, give me my inheritance now. And he goes off into the far country and he just destroys the entire inheritance. And then he has to wonder, would I ever be welcomed back into my father's house? Jesus tells these stories that are are so simple to remember and to identify the characters so that we can discover deep truths about ourselves and then deep truths about God. And that's the amazing thing about them. They're simple enough that any of us can understand them doesn't matter what our education background is or what our history is. They're simple enough that we get the picture. And yet, if we increase in our education and our information, we, we can't take those stories deep enough. We're yet to find the bottom of the story of the prodigal son and just how much the father would love his own son that he would welcome him back after he destroyed every part of his inheritance. And so speaking the truth in order to affect change sometimes means we tell it in an indirect way. I mean, I could could do this right now. Most of you, if I were to try to ask you to remember a favorite line from a movie of yours or a song of yours that you've been listening to this week, you can bring it to mind. You remember the lines from the movie because you remember the story in the overall movie. And I've done this several times where... You say the line, and I'll find somebody else in here who knows where the, where the reference is from. And it never fails, because those things stick in our minds when we can put a story around them. Songs stick in our mind because we have a melody, and so all they had to do was start singing, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. And I could already remember the third verse, I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, nor wisdom. Because when someone put, takes the time to put it in a beautifully told story or in a wonderfully crafted song, that has a way of sticking in us that endures over a long period of time. And we need that. And the better the stories we know, the easier it is to communicate truth to people. I remember being in a situation years ago where I was seeking advice from someone. I felt like something that uh, we'd been working on for a period of time and was heading in a certain direction, all of a sudden felt like at the end when we should have been at the celebration point of the things we'd been working on, it felt like everything switched and everything changed and I didn't know which was the right way to go or who was right or why all of a sudden people that I thought were in agreement weren't in agreement anymore. And I just was looking, talking to different people and asking them for advice, counsel. Let me just describe to you what's going on and you, you tell me what you think. And so I can remember one mentor in my life, I, I talked to him, I gave him the details uh, from as best as I could, trying not to add my own interpretation to the story, but we can never 
avoid that ultimately. And he just responded over the phone and he said, it sounds like you've met your Laban. And in that very short phrase, he gave me an amazing category to process everything I was dealing with. What he's referring to is an Old Testament story. And there was someone named Jacob who had been working hard because he wanted to marry a young girl. And he worked for seven years hoping to be able to marry this girl. And the father, after those seven years, surprises Jacob by saying, well, I don't really want my younger daughter to get married before my older daughter. And so unbeknownst to him, he gets married and he doesn't know that he just married the wrong person. And so Laban was the one in his life who basically said, you know, we thought we were at this point of all this hard work and here we were and everything changed. And so when he made reference to that, it just gave me a whole new way of processing the events that, I mean, the first point in the story is, I mean, to keep it appropriate for Sunday morning, stuff happens, right? I'm not... (laughs) Stuff happens in life, and you're not the first person it's happened to. We won't use the New American Standard version of that. We'll just keep it there. (laughs) But life doesn't just work in an unfolding way where everything you thought was going to happen happened, and everybody who agreed agreed, and life is much more complicated than that. But there's also the truth in that story that even when everything switched, that wasn't the end. Basically, what Jacob learned was If you work seven years for this, are you willing to work seven more? And in the case of his story, he was. And that was just so helpful to prove. If you work so hard for this to get to this point, what if it just means you have to work twice as hard as you thought? Are you willing to do it? Yeah, I am. Because if I believed in it enough to get to this point, I believe in it enough to keep on going. And it was just, he just used a short phrase. (laughs) But that phrase, because it was connected to a larger story, spoke into the realities of things I was trying to process at that time in ways that that almost nothing else could have. It's one of the reasons we read through the stories of the Bible. If some of you were to come and say, you know, I just really think if I just follow God and I do what he wants, I'll never struggle again with sin. And one of the things we would say to you is, have you ever read the story of David? (laughs) Do you know who King David is? What makes you think that if you just know God and, and, and you have a healthy background in your family that you'll be exempt from struggle and sin? What makes you think that even if you obey God, you'll be exempt from suffering? Nothing in the stories of the Bible lead us to those expectations, but we develop them so often. So one of the reasons we aim to preach systematically through the Bible is so that we remember these stories and so that these stories stick and so that when we hear the truth of Scripture, it's not just told to us, but it hopefully stays with us in such a way that it affects change in our lives. That's what Nathan is doing to David. But then, he's not only speaking truth to affect change, he needs to be willing to speak the truth without fear of the consequences. Verse seven is is the gutsy verse in this chapter. David has come to the conclusion, you are the man, or that the person deserves to die. David said it, but now Nathan takes that and says to David, you are the man. That's a gutsy thing to say to the king. You are the person 
in the story who took what did not belong to you and that in your own words deserves to die. If David is still not in the right place with God in verse 7, then Nathan's just going to be the next person that David takes out. You just, you just challenged the king. You just told the king of the nation that his behavior is so bad, he, in his own words, deserves punishment. If his heart is not in the right place or getting there, Nathan's done. His time in the ministry's over. His prophecy has come to an end. It's a gutsy, gutsy move. And so why would he do it? Well, one, he has to be willing to speak the truth without fear of the consequences. And in that, what I mean is, he has no fear for how this is going to affect him. He loves David enough and is called by God to speak into David's life that if David responds wrongly, it's probably over, but he, he can't be afraid of that. Because if he's afraid of that, then he won't be willing to say, you are the man. He might say, do you know anyone that this might sound like, you know? Um, but eventually, the creative story needs the direct application. And sometimes we err on using only one or the other. Some of us love telling stories, and we're never willing to just also apply directly who the story's referring to. We say, well, it's up for anybody to interpret it. And others of us like the direct truth and we don't think creatively and poetically about how to say it in ways that are better so that people will listen to it um, with, with greater receptivity. But Nathan has to be willing to bring the story home. He has to be willing to say to him, you are the man, you're the guilty one, and that there is a judgment that's coming upon you without any fear for how those consequences might be played out in his own life. So much of the reality of our inability to communicate with one another is because we communicate in fear. We're just really afraid of what you might think if I say this or what I might think if you tell me this. And and so that so much of that shapes the way we communicate with each other that we very rarely say anything meaningful at all. But Nathan is willing to say it. He doesn't have fear of consequences. He tells him the truth. And he also tells David at the end, after David has repented, and David has now come to his own conclusion in verse 13, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan says to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Though you, David, have said you deserve to die, I'm going to tell you that you're not going to die. But there are going to be ongoing consequences for your sin. The sword is never going to leave your house, David. You have messed up too long in, abusive, in abusing your power in relationships with women that you have too many wives and too many children and there, there will not be peace in your home. And though you might be forgiven from your sin, you will not be spared all of the consequences that come from them. Some of us, Think of repentance as the way to try to avoid the consequences. You know, almost any one of us, if we get caught in something, we'll be pretty quickly like, oh, okay, yes, I did do it. But repentance is the willingness to change your behavior, even if it might not change the consequences. 
to say, you know what, I am still guilty of that, and if there's a punishment to be paid, if there's something to go, I'll choose that road instead of continuing to lie about what I'm doing and continuing to do what I'm doing. I'd rather live with my integrity and my character restored and yet the ongoing consequences potentially being there. And those are realities that we face on a given basis. Someone coming to faith in Christ and pouring out their heart before him and surrendering to him will not automatically be able to overcome every serious sin or addiction they might have. Or even sins that have happened against them. Right? I mean, do do we hopefully have a sense of compassion for someone who might have now come in a dramatic way to Christ, but for the first 30 years of their life, they were abused by their parents? That's not, that's not going to be unwound in a conversion experience. That's going to present lifelong challenges of insecurity, fear, anxiety, depression, that the gospel provides tremendous resources for. But our sense of expectation should also realize that the consequences of sin continue to unfold in this world. Not necessarily that everything is in direct result of sin, but we just live in a sinful world. We live in a fallen world. And because we live in a fallen world, there is disease, there is pain, there is suffering. And even in coming to Christ, he has kept us in this world. And he has told us to expect pain in this world, to expect persecution in this world, but to trust and to believe that he will be with you in all of those situations, that he will guide us in all of those circumstances, that we will never be left alone. And so, thankfully, here Nathan is willing to speak the truth without fear of the consequences, and now we get the opportunity to hear in a more detailed way from David as he processes all of this in Psalm 51. So I invite you to turn your Bible to Psalm 51. This is on page 474. Psalm 51, page 474, it says, To the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me 
the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good design in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. And then you will delight in right sacrifices. In burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Here, part of speaking the truth in love is speaking the truth to invite worship. For Nathan, he was speaking the truth in order to effect change. And here, David is taking the time. He's repented from his sin. He has said he was the man. He's the one. He's guilty. He deserves the punishment. But he still takes time then to craft this psalm in response to his own conviction, and then ultimately for the good of the people of Israel, so that he desires in no way to hide his sin. And therefore, there's a reason that, that we actually know about the story in First Samuel chapter 11. You know, David's the king. He can kind of troll, some of, to some extent, what books get published <laughs> and what stories get passed down. And when we read through the accounts of the Bible and see the brokenness of even its leaders, and particularly David, We say part of the reason that is in there is because for all of us, there's a lesson to be learned in the frailty and in the brokenness and in the struggle of sin that David had. And so now when he composes this psalm and he responds in repentance and he asks God to have mercy, there's so much of it as it flows in the beginning. You say, yeah, that's right. You need mercy, David. (laughs) You need God to wash you clean. You need God to do all of these things. And I don't know about for you, but for me, when it starts to almost get, seem like he's asking too much, is by the time we get down to verse eight. He says, let me hear joy and gladness. And let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face, blot out all my iniquities, create in me a clean heart, renew a right spirit within me, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit part of the tension for me of where this feels inappropriate is shouldn't you just ask for mercy and stop shouldn't david in the conviction of his sin say i'm busted please forgive me and then do whatever you want right but david asks for restored joy he asks for a restored sense of God's presence and the joy of his salvation. And so one of the reasons I think actually this isn't inappropriate and it is quite profound that it's in here is that one of the ways to keep David and all of us from falling back into those patterns and going back into those sinful habits is not just to know that the past has been forgiven, but to genuinely experience a renewed joy in God, a renewed fellowship, 
That's part of why David fell into sin is that he was not enjoying his relationship with God. He was not content with all of the things he had and so he went, ever, he went after something that never should have belonged to him. And so when he's saying, God, give me back the joy of salvation. Help me to praise you and help me to lead other people in the praising of you. What he is asking for is ultimately the answer to falling back into sin again. That if his relationship with God is vibrant, if his heart is on fire for God and his ways and he genuinely gets joy when temptation comes to him, he'll be able to resist that and say, no, I'm not falling back into that because I just love God too much to desire to do that to him. You don't need to tell me it's legal or illegal. I'm just telling you I love God enough and I'm enjoying my relationship with him enough that I don't want to do the things that would hinder that relationship. Sin pulls me away from him. It makes God feel distant and I don't want to do that. So that when he says in verse four, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, that's another place we would stop and say, wait a minute, Dave. You sinned against Uriah, you sinned against Bathsheba, you sinned against your wives, you sinned, and we can name a whole bunch of people. What do you mean you sinned against the Lord and against him only? Well, David understands that because he sinned against God, and he did not have his joy in God, in his salvation, that eventually led to hurting all the other people. Because he did not first love God, he didn't love anybody else. And so he's confessing that, that most fundamentally and primarily his sin was not against Uriah or Bathsheba. It was against God himself. He's not denying that other people were involved or affected. Just read the other half of 2 Samuel chapter 12. And you'll see that David can in no way deny that other people were affected because of his sin. He knows that. But he also understands something about his own heart and how God has wired us, that it's first and foremost our relationship with God that needs to be intact and strong. And when that joy is restored, that keeps us and enables us to love other people well, to resist temptation when it comes. And then to be able to do all the things he's saying. Look, if this happens, I'll teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Help me bring other people back from, the, from being lost just like Nathan brought me back. If, if you restore me, if you maintain that spirit within me, I want to do for others what Nathan did for me. And so that's one of the reasons that Psalm 51 is here. It's our opportunity when we're caught in sin and we know we're guilty, we know we deserve punishment, that this would be one of the places that we would come and we would hear about God who is merciful. We would hear about God who is compassionate and that we would feel it appropriate to pray the kinds of things that David is praying, to ask for cleansing, to ask for healing, to ask for a restoration of joy, and in asking for all of those things, that desire to, to worship God. That's what David's longing for. That's why he's put this in here, so that you and I can know that we have the same access he had to God's mercy through, verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. In other words, you will not reject. If we come broken to you, if we come with a spirit of contrition and genuine repentance, 
if we come to him in that vein, he sends us back in joy. He sends us back in fullness. He sends us back in peace. Because he really is that good. I just hope one of the very practical applications for some of you as we go through David's life would be that some of you would desire to tell really, really good stories. (laughs) And you'd say, man, I want to be like a Nathan. And I want to write a script or a movie or a something that helps people see truth in ways that they don't just quite see it when it comes directly at them. Or that some of you would desire and say, I really want to put a prayer down or a song down in such a way that maybe one day people would sing it and, and that these truths about God would go deep into their hearts that they would remember forever. Because God is worth that time and attention. I mean, there was totally the emotional response of David to say, I am the person. I am guilty. Please forgive me. But with that, he added this careful, processed reflection that you and I are now the beneficiaries of. Oh, what an awesome thing if we would embrace that challenge as well. To think very intentionally and creatively about communicating God's truth in a way that would affect change without fear of the consequences and that would actually invite the world to worship God in ways that they currently do not. We're going to end this week like we have most of the series. We're going to stand and say this psalm together. We're going to say Psalm 51, verses 1 through 12. I invite you to stand. As we allow David to direct us in worship. Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We come to you longing for the truth to penetrate into our minds and our hearts. We confess that we usually seek comfort and not truth. We usually seek just to be encouraged in the ways that we're going instead of to be challenged to be better. 
to repent, to confess, to come before you with brokenness. And so we do thank you for your written word that gives to us truths from other people's lives that gives us the opportunity to hear what you might want to say to us in our day, in our situations, in our struggles with sin, in some of the brokenness in our relationships with other people. And Father, we pray that you would take these truths, that you would plant them deep in us. You know all the various places we come from, the different struggles that we have and the realities that we face. And so we pray that through your spirit, you would apply this into our minds and into our hearts. Send into our lives people like Nathan who get us to see the truth of who we are and the the need that we have to come back to you. In your son's name we pray, amen.